right, folks, we're back. Let's see if uh, see how many of these quotes I need to read before you can guess this person. Uh, imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. Few are those who see with their own eyes and feel with their own hearts. Try not to become a man of success, but rather to become a man of value. Not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. All religions, arts, and sciences are branches of the same tree. Look deep into nature, and then you will, you will understand everything better. An intelligent fool can make things bigger and more complex. It takes a touch of genius and a lot of courage to move in the opposite direction. In the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. If you haven't guessed it by now, this is Sir Albert Einstein and some of his most famous quotes. And uh, that's sort of um, in, in the same flavor as uh, our guest today. So first I want to welcome all of you guys back to the podcast. Uh, this is Conversations with the Mind. You're in the right place. Uh, welcome back and thank you as always for... Being a listener, um, that really means a lot to us, and our listenership continues to grow every week. So thank you very much. Uh, continue to like and share our posts when we put them up on social media. And uh, please check out our YouTube page also, the MindOps YouTube page, where we have a number of YouTube videos that we've uploaded, um, sort of breaking down some of the concepts that we talk about here on the podcast. But the best way you can support the, co- the podcast is to like and share and uh, get the word out word of mouth, however you can, tell your friends, tell your family, get them turned on to the conversation and help them to tune in as well. Um, you can also donate to the podcast if you wish. I don't take any profits from the donations. All donations go into uh, back into the podcast to bring you all a clear message. So um, we've received some pretty, uh, pretty good uh, donations so far, and I will be ordering uh, new mics uh, soon, so the the sound quality will be better. Uh, I'll also be putting together a podcast studio in my new uh, house or rental that Callie and I will be moving into in August, so expect that down the road as well. And um, I just uh, went out and purchased a GoPro, so that's in the mail coming soon, so we can put our uh, podcast on YouTube, and you guys can uh, see the antics that we're up to you know, as we record these things. So, uh, thank you for your donations. Um, again, it just goes back into the podcast to, uh, to help the message be clearer. So we are sponsored as always by my private practice counseling and consulting company, MindOps. You can find us at mindops.com. That's M I N D hyphen O P S.com. Uh, I am an eclectic psychotherapist uh, with a number of specialties. I'm an, addi- an addictions counselor, sport and performance psychology consultant, uh, also called a certified mental performance coach uh, or consultant. Um, I also do general psychotherapy and psychedelic integration therapies. So I kind of um, wide range of specialties, and uh, for most people, I can uh, suit some of their needs. So I can do one-on-one um, sessions. I can do sessions at a distance, either through telehealth, uh, over the phone, or through secure video chat apps. 
Um, so we work with individuals, we work with teams, we work with small and large groups, we work with businesses, military, uh, medical professionals, lawyers, students, just anybody who really needs to improve their mental performance in order to do what they do. So if that's if that sounds like you, if, if, if you're running into some roadblocks in your own mind and need some help getting through it or just want to strengthen some of the things that you're good at and sharpen some of those uh, duller edges, please reach out to us at mindops.com. That's the best way to get a hold of us. And also, again, check out the MindOps YouTube page. All right, so on to the good news story today. And um, this story reads, uh, it's from the Good News Network, reads, Uber to launch new fleet of cars piloted by specially trained canine drivers. And it talks about um, how Uber is putting together these uh, systems in the car. Um, the service is called Uber Arf, and it says we'll employ a team of specialized mid to large size pups as drivers in several major U.S. cities. It also says that uh, they will be paid a wage of four treats and three belly rubs per hour. Um, it sounds like the uh, the dog would just be chilling in the front seat, um, maybe with an automatic driver uh, driving the car, but that sounds pretty interesting. And uh, the reason why I'm sharing this story is because April Fool's just passed, so uh, this, is, uh, this is, I think, an April Fool's um, article. So if, uh, if you first heard that and you're like, whoa, that's cool, then I got you. So April Fool's to all of you listeners out there, a little bit of laughter and, and fun. All right, so that's the good news story today. Our guest is a very special guest today, uh, Dustin Taylor. Dustin and I met working at... Um, a residential treatment facility for youth boys um, with all sorts of a range of issues, anything from conduct disorder to, you know, we had some clients that were refugees from other countries uh, trying to get citizenship. We had people, you know, with all sorts of different um, mental health issues, developmental uh, issues, all sorts of things kind of all put together in this little facility. And Dustin and I were both um, counselors at this uh, this place, um, you know, um, what do they call it? Line staff. So we'd work day to day with the, with the uh, youth and and helping to teach life lessons and helping to correct behaviors on the spot and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, I'm sure Dustin and I might get into that a little bit. But Dustin is an ex-marine. Um, that was before I knew him, but uh, I hope we get to touch into that a little bit. He's an ex-marine, but he has become a school psychologist and now works uh, in the school systems trying to improve. Um, those trying to improve those systems they need a lot of improvement um some interesting things about dustin some things that i i really value about his opinion and why i wanted to have him on the podcast he's lived in both ends of the socioeconomic scale um uh, just like myself and so you know we have a lot in common in that sense and and can touch on some of the the intricacies of living on both sides um I've always known Dustin to be very observant and contemplative by nature, and I value that in him as well. I try and embrace that part of myself as much as possible, and I think we all can, um, just to be as mindful as possible during the day, as well as uh, you know to really sit down and quiet the mind so that we can really contemplate these deeper topics, which is you know why, why I created the podcast, so that we can talk about these, so we have a venue to talk about these deeper topics that... You know, a lot of people don't give themselves the opportunity to really explore. And uh, right now, uh, Dustin's biggest hobby is learning, which I love um, because that's probably uh, 
my biggest hobby as well. So always trying to learn new things. And um, yeah, we have a lot. We have a lot of interesting things to talk about. So welcome to the podcast, Dustin. Well, thank you. It's good to be here, man. Right on. So um, the first question I always ask to all my guests is the same. And you've heard the podcast, so you know what's coming. Um, So the question is, uh, you know, the podcast is called Conversations with the Mind. And I want to know just how that resonates with you, how it sits with you. And when you hear that phrase, uh, what comes to your mind? Okay, so before I get to that, there's a couple things I want to touch on with the introduction. One, you read Einstein quotes and then... Then you said something about me, and I was like, nah, nah, let's not be drawing those uh, those lines. Uh-huh. And, and additionally, um, I'm not really sure I, I buy into the whole genius uh, idea anyways. Hmm. But uh, the next thing was, you said, ex-Marine. So, you know, retired Marine. Retired Marine. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I know. Unless you're dishonorably discharged. But, yeah, I mean, it doesn't bother me. That's my mistake. I know. You, you yeah. of all people. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck that one up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, conversations with the mind. So I think about it, and um, number one, the question I, I think we we're always saying with the mind. So you're saying the mind is separate, right mm-hmm. there off the bat. And we kind of talked about the ego a couple of days ago, and and that's kind of my struggle is conversations with the mind. I I keep talking to it. It keeps talking. It keeps talking back. Um, and I don't know if I'm getting anywhere. I feel like I get more places when I'm not having conversations with the mind, when I'm at rest, when I'm at peace, um, when I'm up in the mountains, like meditating, uh, doing solo hikes. I feel like when there's no conversations with the mind, that's when I find the most answers. That's when the answers come forth a lot of times. Um, but the idea of conversations with the mind is the idea that we can convince it to to do something like we have some control i think mm-hmm. that's one reason we would talk with the mind is because we we have this perception we have some control and and I, i'm i'm not saying we do or we don't but i'd, I'd be interested to know the answer yeah sure. I, think every, <laughs> I think everybody would be interested yeah that's interesting um you know you're the first guest to bring up that uh the way that i use language uh for the title of the podcast um, could put out certain perceptions and certain meanings for certain people, you know. Um, I like where you're going with it, where you th- where you said, you know, conversations with the mind um, might imply that the mind is separate. Um, when I view the statement, conversations with the mind, um, I think, you know, I have the belief that all is one, you know. So consciousness is um, all-encompassing, and it includes the mind, and so conversations with the mind could mean just a conversation with a piece of ourself that's not necessarily separate, but just a different part, right? So like uh, I can have a conversation with my hand, right? But that doesn't mean that it's separate from who I am. It's not separate from my body, right? Does that make sense? I see what you're saying. So that's, that's where I was taking it. But I really like what you're, what you're saying too. Um, because before the podcast, we were talking about uh, how you... You feel sometimes you have these um, different personalities or different masks that you put on, right? Mm-hmm. For different people, you have your business mask, you have your your friend mask, you have your uh, you know whatever, and then um, you know you you just said uh, you know going up into the mountains and things like that where you can clear your mind um, and not have those conversations with those different parts of yourself. That's often when you're even open enough to receive the message, right? Oh, I think that's 
I think that's an insightful comment. Uh -huh. uh, and yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. So Einstein also said, uh, and I tell my clients this all the time, that um, a problem cannot be solved from the same mindset in which it was created, right? So it takes a little bit of unpacking to understand that. So for, for the listeners, what that means is, um, you know, we all create these problems in our head uh, every single day, uh, whether it be, you know, stressing out over a uh, school paper or uh, worrying about something at work or worrying about something in a relationship that may not may or may not be present. We create these problems, um, and then a lot of times we feel stuck, like, I cannot think my way out of this anxiety. I cannot think my way to the solution. Well, Einstein would say, well, duh, your, your mindset is still in the same place that it was when you created the problem. You're still focusing on the problem, right? So to me, that, that means you, know, you need to completely change your mindset to something completely different, and that's when the answer will come. You know? So for you, when you said that, you, know, you have these conversations in your mind between you know, maybe your spiritual self and your ego, and they're battling, they're trying to figure out these problems, and you just can't get anywhere between them, but then you go up into the mountains, and you change your mindset. You clear your mindset from this chatter of being here in society to the quiet being in the wilderness. You change your mind, and then the answer comes, right? I think that's exactly what Einstein was saying, and I think that's what he would suggest for any of us. That's what I suggest for a lot of my clients is, you know, you find yourself in this problem mindset, go do something nice for yourself or go uh, color a mandala or something, right? Do something. Put on your favorite um, song, right? So all these things can change our mood, can change our mindset, and then you'll find maybe that when you let go of the problem a little bit, the answer will come. I mean, I, I think those are like some great options. Mm -hmm. The only problem is I, I feel like so many people I talk to these days, they get caught up with the the idea that, they're too busy to do things. And, oh, and when I hate I say, when people say that. So, I say it too, though. So yeah, Exactly. <laughs> so that's what I was getting to. Was I, I, I was thinking about how I say the same thing. Mm -hmm. I say, oh, I'm, I'm too busy to meditate for nine minutes in the morning. You know, like... That's <laughs> like, the one I, I can't. Care, yeah. I can't carve out ten minutes in the morning to meditate. Mm -hmm. and, and every day I do it, I find that I have more time throughout the day. Every single day I do it. And, you know, I, I haven't done it for probably the past 10 days. And I'm like, ah, oh, like I'm so busy. You the know? days are so short. <laughs> the days are so short. And I'm like, yeah. if only, if only I would take the time to meditate in the morning. I know it would help me. And, and uh, they show that like, if you do it for 10 days, you actually, that's when you start seeing the effects mm -hmm. once you do 10 days in a row. Yeah, meditation and mindfulness are integral pieces of my own psychological practice with clients. Like we do meditation in every single session at the beginning. Um, and we do mindfulness practice through, throughout. And um, yeah, I, I hear that. That's probably the number one uh, thing that I hear from clients is I don't have 10 minutes to meditate. I don't have five minutes in the day. Where am I going to find that time to do that? Um, and the way I put it is, you know, and the way I also think about it is you put in, it's like an investment, right? You put in 10 minutes invested into yourself. You invest 10 minutes, sit down, stop moving, Close your eyes, start breathing, and shut off your mind for 10 minutes. Invest in yourself, please. Yep. Do 10 minutes of self-care, but the payout, you know, that investment is going to, you know, pay out 100 times more throughout the day. Like you said, you, you meditate 10 minutes at the beginning of the day, and you find that you have more time during the day. And I think that that's probably because you've set the stage in your mind to be more productive, to be more efficient, to be calmer about 
things that happen in the day. So you're not wasting energy on um, anxiety or things like that, right? You're just focused all day long and you're calm. And things run a lot smoother when, when your mind is that way. Right. And I, I think it depends because there's so many like meditation is such a loose term. There's, there's so many different types of meditation. And, and I, I always feel bad for the people who tried it and they're like, oh, that's not going to work for me. Or I tried it, it didn't work for me. And and like I'm like well I can I can show you the neuroscience that you're wrong like, right. <laughs> like yeah like no, I, right. I if we measured your brain you know uh, before and after ten days of a straight meditation your brain waves will change like I I can show it to you and we can show you that your brain your brain gray matter will increase after eight week program you know yeah. they tested uh, normal people and they tested monks. Uh, with uh, you know EEGs and things like that under meditation yeah. and uh, yeah we found that gray matter and brain matter grows your brain cells grow faster and better and um, gray matter also shrinks right in certain areas yes. yeah in areas associated with <laughs> fear and addiction yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so that's why it's great for people with addiction issues is because um, you know forcing yourself to, to get consistent and do these meditations will literally shrink the part of the brain that uh, yeah, it shrinks the gray matter near the amygdala and then exactly. increases it near the prefrontal cortex exactly it gives us more rational reasoning ability yeah. and shrinks um, shrinks the addictive side of the brain so that's awesome yeah it's, it's, it's super, like a superpower it, well yeah it's it's super interesting I mean it's mm -hmm. it's we now that we're finding we can change your brain in so many different ways I think that's the neuroscience is, is just growing like everything. They're questioning whether fMRIs really show us what we think we knew before and now they're different types of scanning and um, we're looking at the brain in whole different ways now. Uh, we're learning there's bacteria that live in the brain and now we're learning of course that the, the stomach, the microbiome is the largest brain we might possibly have mm -hmm. and that has a huge interaction with the rest of our body and uh, the vagus nerve and how they communicate. I mean it's there's so much information out there that's mm -hmm coming forward with how we can actually change the mind through not only how we treat ourselves but like through like meditation but also through like diet like how that actually affects our brain and affects our entire body and you know if uh there was something i heard recently from uh, dave asprey and he he mentioned um the uh mitochondria he's like because he tries to find a scientific reason for a lot of things he's like the mitochondria might be the chi of our body so like if you look in like mitochondrial health and they're, the, they're essentially what creates energy. They create, uh, convert, I forget what it's called, but they convert into ATP. And ATP is essentially what we use for energy. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but if you just pretty much follow like a mitochondrial health diet, like that's kind of the new thing is to function that. And, and uh, I heard something else recently, it was called the adaptation. We are adapting machines. So it's important, like we kind of talk about that feeling where you are feeling busy all the time all the time um that's chronic stress mm -hmm. you're under chronic stress what you want to be under is acute stress if you can be under short-term high intensity stress that's what you want to aim at and then you want to come down and kind of chill out for the rest of the day right you don't yeah. want to adapt to a constant level of high stress exactly. right because then um those are bad adaptations right mm -hmm. and you're right we're, we're adapting machines the human body is so freaking amazing um, one of the greatest creations I think ever, you mm -hmm. know, it's pretty freaking amazing how we can heal ourselves. Um, you know, all these processes going on and at the same time, you know, this is just a, it's just a shell, you know, the body's just a shell for consciousness, you know, and maybe that, you know, the mind body connection and, and things like that, um, 
you know, are starting to come to light with this new research that how important that connection is. You know, I think in our culture anyway, there's a much greater emphasis on uh, body health. Um, so diets and nutrition and exercise and you look at Instagram posts and it's all like um, fitness people and people taking pictures of their meals and like, oh, I'm healthy in all these ways. Um, and there's much less emphasis on training the mind or um, investigating one's own spirituality uh, or, or connection to the universe, you know, your consciousness, exploring the in infinitude that is consciousness, you know. Um, I don't know. I think that's why I, why I kind of, my own direction of interest went away from the body. I was very interested in the body and how it worked uh, in like elementary, middle school, things like that. Anatomy books, you would always find me buried in. Mm -hmm. I was an athlete, you know, so always um, expressing myself through the body. But then as I got a little older, and I think probably with the introduction of psychedelics, I probably had something to do with it. But um, I started exploring my mind and found that it was limitless. You know, there was so much more that I could explore and figure out um, than I could with the body. But that I'm not discounting the importance of the body. You know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, you you need uh, you need something to tether you to this world in a certain aspect, mm -hmm. right? If we're going kind of more metaphysical, where the idea that there's, uh, I mean, do you believe in like a singular truth or like that there is no truth? Like, which would you say? Oh, it depends on how you define truth and what context you're talking about it. I, I mean, I think it would be up to you to define truth. So the way that I hear you t saying it reminds me of uh, also when people ask me, like, do you believe that um, all, all existence is one entity or one God or one unity or something like, like a that. collective. Yeah. Okay. Then that is kind of what I'm asking. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So if you're asking me that, then I'm a believer that yes, everything is um, one thing. It's one large, large, large system, um, fractalized, infinitely small and infinitely big. Um, and some of that has been shown by science, um, you know, with with quantum physics and some of the mathematics and things like that, showing that uh, everything is connected, that one atom at one end of the universe can be connected with an atom simultaneously at the other end of the universe, and you affect one and something happens to the other one. And uh, if that's true, then yeah, um, I think every single thing is connected. Every atom in my body has some influence on every atom in your body and every atom in this table, and the complexity is so... So vast. So, so, you know, you bring up quantum physics. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, we've talked about Einstein earlier. If you want to listen to someone um, who really knows what they're talking about, uh, Sean Carroll has a mm -hmm. podcast called Mindscape. Yep, I've heard it. Woo! Mm -hmm. That. I can't listen to that and go to bed, man. It's, it's way too intense. It's pretty heady. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I love that stuff. It's like, uh, you know, it's 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 brand new science i mean relatively right yeah, yeah last mean, hundred years new to me right right yeah <laughs> and it seems like yeah everything i read about it is just like it shatters my entire concept of what reality is you know like i'll pick up a quantum physics book and start to read it and each chapter that i read i have to like i have to like sit back and be like whew oh my god I don't exist in the way that I ever thought I did. Like, 
I'm I'm ninety percent ninety nine percent empty space. You know, like all these all these things. Like I can only what I can only see like ten percent of what's in my environment because oh, I can God. only see the yeah. light spectrum. Yeah, your optimum vision is like just slightly past the length of your arm, and everything after that is just your imagination, like your brain constructing the the what right. you actually see. Oh right. my God, that yeah. stuff. What? And so yeah, it blows your mind. Or the uh, yeah, there was a guy who wrote that book about how many heartbeats the human heart has. He looked at the human body from a physicist mm-hmm. point of view and said like every mammal has the same amount of heartbeats. Now see, I heard that too. Um, I heard that theory as well, but I had I had to question the validity of that just because, I mean, it makes some sense, right? the the heart is an organ it's a machine it's a muscle uh it makes sense that a machine or a bio a muscle would have a certain number of beats before the muscle's no good like a car engine right has a certain number of repetitions that the pistons can pump before something seizes um but if that's the case then super athletes and high endurance athletes would be dead in their 20s or 30s because their heart rates um you know, spike when they're competing. Now, that being said, you know, people who are usually more active and have higher heart rates also usually have a lower resting heart rate. So there's something to be said about that balancing itself out. Um, But I don't know. I feel like uh, someone who leads like a super calm, peaceful life, like maybe a monk or something who can slow his heart rate down um, to like 15 beats per minute, could probably live a lot longer than most of us because he's expelling less energy over a lifetime. So I, yes, I think everything you said was pretty much accurate. Uh, it's confusing stuff. <laughs> it is confusing stuff. But that being said, I mean, it has been shown like uh, like marathon runners uh, who do it consistently, they do die younger. Uh, really? Yeah. So you don't want to, like, that's more like, it almost goes into that chronic Exercise like anything over ninety minutes is started considered like kind of like yeah. chronic. Well, exercise point. is a stressor on the body, so right. you, I mean, long distance running would be chronic stress. So yeah, Ben Green, Ben Greenfield goes over a lot of this stuff because he did. Uh, he's a triathlon coach and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I know the uh, what you said exactly that you would live longer, like you know, like Buddhist meditators and stuff. But what they do is uh, they do you know kind of like heart zone one. Uh, recovery type exercises so tai chi qigong walking gardening all these really low uh kind of low low energy activities but that still stress the body a little bit like those ones that really would seem to extend your life so hmm. like uh like the longevity research coming out right now is all <clears throat> all based around like low level kind of heart zone one heart zone two meditation every once in a while you do like maybe two to maybe two one to two times a month you do some kind of Heart zone four or five. Mm-hmm. I guess it'd be heart zone three with like the, depending which heart zone training you're doing. But the most extreme one. Yeah. You do that one or two times a month. What, so still on the body uh, here, what do you think about the idea of the brain? So we're talking about neuroscience, right? Mm-hmm, neuroscience yeah. is, is booming right now. I hope to. Yeah, yeah. I hope to. Uh, one of my past podcast um, guests, uh, Dr. Scott Shannon, is doing a lot of good um, neuroscience uh, out at the wholeness center with um, ketamine assisted therapy and things like that for depression or um, for all sorts of things also okay. mostly depression yeah. <clears throat> but um, you know he's 
we're, he's working with the idea of uh, neuroplasticity and just how important that is, how we can reshape the brain mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in any number of ways. We're, we're discovering new ways, new training methodologies every single day, um, but using neurofeedback to do it. <clears throat> and okay, yeah. so what do you think about the idea... And I don't know how new of an idea this is. Probably some philosopher back in the day thought this as well. Um, but the majority there are no new ideas. Yeah, but yeah. the majority of the masses and, and and scientists and philosophers have always thought that the mind resides in the brain um, or in the body of uh, somewhere. Mm-hmm. But um, what do you think about the idea that the brain is simply just a tuning fork? That it is just an organ um, that tunes itself to the frequency of consciousness to maybe filter consciousness through it, like it's. It's a tool that it's not necessarily where consciousness resides or where our true us self reside. What do you think about that idea? One, I love the idea. Yeah. Two, I tend to be, I, I think spiritualism is my weakness. It's, mm-hmm. And that's why, like I did that meditation retreat, and that's why I try to expand it. I try to work on my, my weaknesses. Uh, yeah, so tell the, tell the guests about your meditation retreat. You went, you went to the meditation retreat after I suggested you meditate? Yeah, yeah. So it was... Um, so, so, I mean, do you want to get into the whole truck living? Because yeah, you know, that kind yeah. of what leads into. Okay. Oh sure. All right. So um, I know full time employed school psychologist. Then I uh, this last summer I decided to get out of my lease early and then just live on the road, travel around um, Colorado and see all the sites because I've been here for about seven years now. There's a lot of stuff I haven't seen. I've lived in Rifle, lived in Fort Collins, Greeley. And I was like, all right, I want to, like, see the state. So I took two months, because uh, I had four months off from my school. I took two two months of it, and I just went around the uh, state, seeing all kinds of things, living on my truck. Uh, it, was, it was fucking amazing. I loved it. It was beautiful. And, uh, and I tried to meditate sometimes, but it really didn't work. But I, in a way, Buddha would have said I was meditating, because I was just sitting there in silence a lot of times, out in the middle of the woods. And... Uh, and then I felt that connectedness that you kind of talk about. Um, it was around like mid-July, and uh, I had uh, no. It was late August. Late August. No, mid-July. Sorry, <laughs> going back and forth. Yeah, mid-July, because I had seen my friend in um, in Durango, and then after that, I went up to Telluride, and Telluride is beautiful. You've been? Have you been? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. If you haven't been to Telluride, like, uh, there's some other places in the world that I've been that I, I really think is beautiful. But Telluride during the summer, Samuk Champagne in Guatemala, and the Grand Canyon uh, have all been, like, really great places to, to see. Um, but, so anyways, I, I, I was on about a 10-day fast, and this was, like, my sixth day I, I got into Telluride. And so I decided to go up hiking up into the mountains and... Uh, and I just went and I spent all day <clears throat> up there and then I did some meditating up there and you know when you uh, fast for a certain amount of time your body starts slowing down all the physiological things start slowing down and so your mind starts slowing down <clears throat> and so it actually makes meditating like way easier mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was able to uh, just zone out up there and, and uh, kind of feel like a connection with, uh, with something with the world kind of the idea with that the cosmos I, yeah, the, feeling, the thought that everything is kind of connected together. Yeah. Yeah. Subtly, but in very important ways. Yeah, I mean, in ways I can't comprehend sure. or I don't know. Yeah. Um, it was just a feeling, right? And, and, 
and rarely do I rely on feelings because mm-hmm. I always want that evidence. Yeah. And well, feeling is that is evidence. It, it's, so it is, and that's and that's that's a very good point to make. And I, I feel if you feel it, it's real for you. You know right. that connection. You know, feeling when you talk about it that way, like sitting. I've had experiences like that too. You're sitting on top of a mountain and you just feel connected. It. I think the feel. It's not just feeling. I think the word feeling doesn't do it justice, but it it's um, it's a knowing, you know, that by feeling that connectedness, you you just knew it, like boom, hit you in the face, one hundred percent. There was no doubt that you felt that connection, and that was real. Right. Yeah. And I still think there's something there. You yeah. Know? And uh, if you want to look at it from like a physics standpoint, like uh, I think Eric Weinstein, who's a mathematician, uh, God, that guy's a genius, <laughs> but. Uh, he was talking about how we've pretty much figured it out mathematically, physics speaking. We've pretty much figured out the visible universe, mm-hmm. but that only accounts for three percent of what's out there. So the ninety-seven percent of dark matter and dark energy, which we really know nothing about, we know it exerts some force on the living space. Mm-hmm. That's about all we know. <laughs> and so, and, and I'm you know half speaking out my ass on this because I don't really know. That's sure. as far we, as I we, know. We know a little bit. Way. We know a little bit more than that, but <laughs> but still, it's we know very little. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, as as far as we know right now, I think it's it's pretty accurate to say we are only um, you know I forgot all the math on it, but maybe there's like say 27 other species out there. Uh, but we're never going to see another one of them because the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light. And just as physical matter, we can't travel faster than the speed of light. But there might be something too, this dark matter, dark matter energy mm-hmm. thing we find out someday. But mm-hmm. as of right now, mm-hmm. it seems like we're... So you're sitting at the top of the mountain. Yeah, you get sorry. this feeling. I do the tangents. No, that's okay. I'll keep you on, I'll keep you on track. <laughs> good, good. Okay, night. so you're sitting at the top of the mountain meditating. You get this feeling of this knowing that everything is connected. And what happens after that? Where do you go from there? That's a big aha moment for most people, especially in the setting that you were at, at the top of a mountain, you know? What do you do? And you walk back down to your truck, and you're like, where do you go from there? I was confused. Uh, I would say I was confused. I didn't walk back down to my truck. I kept going up uh, uh, to this, these, uh, like, through shale and all this other uh, stuff. It was just, it was a really good, fun time. It's like lots, lots of different stuff up there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, just, I was off trail, so I decided to go off trail like almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't spend any time on the trail. <clears throat> but yeah, I, uh, I just went up there and then I took like a, a bath in like a mountain lake that was you know freezing cold, uh, and that was cool. <laughs> and then uh, just spent the rest of the day up there. I really came down like right around sunset, and then uh, I just laid in my car in silence, and then uh, yeah. And then the next day I went down to town, I think, and just okay. And then it was the weirdest thing. I went down to town and uh, went into the library to get like free Wi-Fi, <laughs> and uh, and I was walking out. This woman just out of the blue, she's like, "What's your name?" And I'm like, "Dustin." And she's like, "Yeah, you're beautiful." And I was like, "Okay," <laughs> like, uh, but it was just like. And then later on, there was this other woman who was like, "Your like aura is all white." Like, mm-hmm. and I was, and so I don't know anything about that stuff, but I have been doing a little more research into it. And, and there's some limited evidence that, um, that there are people who are like empaths or, mm-hmm. um, uh, have different abilities. And, and actually they may even be skills, maybe things that you can train yourself to, mm-hmm. to become or to do. Um, 
and so that's why like I kind of mentioned lucid dreaming earlier on mm-hmm. uh, I feel like I'm in tangents again where, where was I as far as so we were, we were trying to connect how <clears throat> how your, um, oh, what your, I did your journey through the truck led you to the meditation retreat okay so yeah I did the meditation and then um, when I came back to society and I went back to work uh, in September I it was, and even before that kind of like talking to friends I feel like I'd forgotten how to talk like I'd become like a hermit up in the woods not talking to anybody for months and mm. just connecting with uh, whatever's out there right so it became difficult it became super difficult uh, and 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 I had experienced such peace for you know a couple months just like by myself that people stressed me the fuck out <laughs> like I was like, why are people stressing about all these things? Like, this is, none of this stuff is important. <laughs> like, none of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, of course, now I'm, I'm back to stressing out like everyone else. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a tough time. I, I was confused on how to talk to people. Um, I just wanted to talk about things that mattered. And I didn't want to talk about all the small stuff, like, you know, what you did over the summer and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I just wanted to be like, okay, well... You know, how can we change the things that are going on in the world today? <laughs> no, that's exactly how I feel coming back from a big psychedelic journey. Because um, you blast your mind off uh, and open up all these channels um, to make all these connections about the universe and what's really important, you know, uh, to that, what's really important to that truth about who you really are under this shell. And then you come back into your body and you're sober all of a sudden. And then you try to re-engage with people and with the world, and you're like, this is all fake. This is all bullshit stuff. Like, why are we, why are we so concerned with, you know, Kim Kardashian's butt and crap like that? Like, we should be trying to solve ecological issues and, you know, try to connect with people and be nice to each other, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I find that difficult sometimes, too. I call it landing, uh, like a rough landing, when you come back from a psychedelic journey and you have a tough time uh, reintegrating right off the bat. I mean, it mellows out after a while and, mm-hmm. and you, you become the normal stressed version of yourself um, <laughs> once you acclimatize to the culture again. But initially, it's it's like this disconnect. Like you come back and you're like, I don't feel like I'm a part of what's going on here. Um, or I feel like uh, the focus of, of everyday normal waking consciousness is is not focused on the right things yeah mm-hmm. so anyway a little a little tangent for you yeah. so so you come down you have this experience with the woman outside the library yeah yeah and the other one with the uh a woman with the, the aura sure. two different people but yeah it was, so that was odd to me you know because mm-hmm. i uh i think i progressively became a hippie over the summer yeah uh more or less but i i you know i I grew up more like conservative, kind of Republican-ish, so I definitely still have those tendencies, and and I think the research supports, you know, the idea that, or JFK says, don't ask what the country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to be said for that, like that, you need to see what you can do for yourself before you start looking at what other people can do for you. Right. And uh, fix yourself first. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, at least at least look at yourself first. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm, I'm all for, you know, uh, you don't have to, like, make yourself perfect before you start doing charity work. But while you're doing charity work, maybe say, okay, what else is going on in my life? Like, what else can I look at? Mm-hmm. Because everyone's so busy looking at everyone else that it's just it's so stressful thinking about yeah. other people. There's a great, there's a great <laughs> song. Um, you ever heard of the band Gojira? Mm, no? I don't think so. They're a heavy metal band from France, I believe. 
Uh, they're freaking awesome. Callie and I saw them at the Gothic Theater and blew our freaking faces off. But um, they have this one song that's probably my favorite song called um, Esoteric Surgery. It's my favorite song by them. And it talks all about um, taking a scalpel to your inner psyche. You know, going in there and, and looking at it and examining it and cutting out the bad shit and like stapling on some good things. And uh, in, in there, there's my, uh, some really cool lyrics that says... Um, there's a secret code. It's the structure of the mind. You have the power to heal yourself. And that just hits me every time. I'm like, fuck yeah, that's totally it. Like as long as we turn that lens from how can other people help me and help me fix myself to turn that lens around and look at our inner psyche and be like, how can I help myself? How, you know, what are my weaknesses? What are my strengths? How can I improve those things? How can I be a better person and how can I evolve? then you're going to end up being a better person on the outside anyway, right? So you come back, you come back to school, everything doesn't seem right, it's September, and then the retreat happened in October, right? Yeah, yeah, so I had... uh, When did we talk? When did we talk? I I I texted you uh, probably in mid (laughs) mid to late September, Uh I'd say, and I kind of asked you about, like, I was having roadblocks with meditation because Mm -hmm. I was was coming back from this time where meditation kind of wasn't that hard. And then it became hard. Yeah. <laughs> and I also, um, you know, we talk about that, you know, it's not that hard, you know, but it, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard when you, when you self justify all the means not to do something right. You know, when you get stuck in that mode of thought as we're, we were talking about earlier. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I was seeking pretty much you know, professional advice on, on next steps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what should I do next? How, how can I take the next steps on kind of improving? And, mm-hmm. and you mentioned like go to retreat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, I looked at it and I tried to find like the cheapest one I could possibly find. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, Shambhala had like a deal for like, right, uh, right over Halloween or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I was like, hell yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Like a three day, um, you know, I just took a day off, I think. And, and this is at the Shambhala Mountain Center, Mountain up, Center in Red up in Red Feather. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful temple. If, if you guys haven't been up there, go check it out. It's like out in the middle of the woods. You can't even see it from the road, but you, you don't even know what to expect until you see it. But you drive up, and there's this huge Buddhist stupa mm-hmm. just right in the middle of the woods, and it's so magical. And like I stand in front of it. I ran a 5K there, and that was the finish line. Ah. And so right when you cross the finish line, you're like right in front of the stupa, and it's just like... Rush of like uh, cosmic positivity comes your way. Have you done the stupid tour? I have not. I haven't even been inside. Holy shit! Yeah. Oh man, like so that place is uh, like I, I recommend you have to do the stupid tour mm-hmm. just because you learn so much about it. And like, he's not saying stupid tour. Stupa people. Yeah, it's S T U P A tour. <laughs> yeah. Is just one A or two? One uh, A. Just one A. I think. Um, but yeah, it's it's. It's super fascinating. I don't think I would have appreciated it really nearly as much if I didn't know like what each wall meant and mm-hmm. like what each statue and the, like the different levels and what those meant and how what's inside the walls. Like each wall, there's like a, a mini stupa mm-hmm. inside. Yeah, like so there's just tons of like cool information. I was like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. How so, was the retreat out there? The three day retreat. You know, it was interesting. Was it a um, silent retreat or no? Okay. And I want to do like a ten day silent retreat. Mm-hmm. Like that'd be my next thing. I think I would totally dig that. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, it was just a three day talking retreat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, during meditation, obviously not talking, um, but we did. 
I think like four or five different forms of meditation and like five different forms of yoga. And of course, like the one first thing they say is like, don't feel like you have to go to everything. Like you can take an entire day to just walk around and like not do anything. But that's not going to work for me because <laughs> I, I came there in part to meditate, but really to learn. Like, and so that's and I did learn a lot. I learned I learned, uh, yeah, different types of meditation, how to introduce them. The fact that like I really suck at that self-love meditation, like that was my biggest weakness. Um, the, the different types of yoga, like the nose nostril breathing yoga uh, was actually pretty interesting, although I would have scoffed at it way earlier and would have never done it on my own. Uh, so like the breathing meditations, uh, I thought were actually relaxing. And then there was um, another type of yoga where you, like you put blocks underneath yourself, you put yourself in a yoga position, and like then you you don't hold yourself physically, mm-hmm. but it still lets the stretch go out. I forget what it's called. Well, it's not prana, but um, but that one was really awesome. I actually felt like huge stretches out of that. Mm-hmm. And you know, of course, I haven't done any of them mm-hmm. since. But right, but you still brought back some benefits from the retreat. I hope I learned. Yeah, I learned a ton, and and it's um, and I think that's a big thing. It opened up my mind to a lot of different possibilities. And there's an Insight Timer app, which is a free app for meditation that I use mm-hmm. for different types of meditating um but i have found that i became i went backwards i went from doing the silent meditating which is supposed to be like the harder one and i think it is to the uh guided meditations mm-hmm. and now i'm almost dependent on guided meditations so mm-hmm. i need to go back and and do the just the chill just out silent. yeah you know just watch yourself stop thinking about your breath and then come back and then watch yourself go away and come back and mm-hmm. that cycle and go through that Nice. So you mentioned the self-compassion meditation being the most difficult. And I feel like, you know, we're talking about this before the podcast, just um, the struggle that, I mean, you mentioned it and you said, you know, I struggle um, to have positive thoughts about myself. And, you know, that a light bulb went off in my head and I'm like, well, that's, that's like pretty much a universal thing for most, for most people. I think we have trouble for a lot of Westerners. Uh, yeah. For a lot of Westerners, we have yeah. trouble thinking positive thoughts about ourselves, And the, that's, it's why the self-compassion meditation is so difficult because we're not trained by our culture to think positively about ourselves. Um, we're trained by our culture to, you know, all the ads on TV tell you you're not good enough until you get our product and then you'll be good enough, right? So we're, we're conditioned to think that we're less than, that we're incomplete, that we're not whole, that if we just have that thing or that person or that skill or that degree, then that's going to make us who we want to be. Um, and it's difficult to have positive thoughts about ourselves along our journey to achieve our goals and dreams. Um, so talk a little bit about about that, like the, the struggle with the self-compassion meditation, because I think everybody listening can probably relate to that. I know I can. Mm-hmm. And um, how you've struggled with um, you know, battling that inner voice that keeps coming back and saying you're not good enough or uh, you're never going to, you know, you're never going to achieve your dreams or goals. So one, I, th- I think the, the sum I learned from the <laughs> retreat was actually the... Um, one of the best tips I learned was she started the meditation out by think of somebody who you love the most, like a you know a mother, a father, a grandparent, a sibling, uh, it could be your, like your spouse or just a friend or whoever, like someone you have a really strong love for, and then and then hold on to that love, focus on it, make like see how it makes you feel, mm-hmm. and then you then uh, take that same feeling and then use that feeling to connect it with your loving yourself. Mm-hmm. 
And so I would do that and I'd cycle back and forth because I'd, I'd use it. And then like as I'm focusing on myself, I'd lose kind of that loving feeling. Mm-hmm. And then I have to go grab it again, essentially from like I use my sister, for example. Mm-hmm. But so I, I think that was a really good tip that kind of worked for me. Yeah, it's, a, it's almost like a, a familiarization exercise where, you know, someone goes into a self-compassion meditation practice for the first time. They're like, I have no idea what to do. I've never really loved myself, right? You don't have a blueprint on how to do it. So the meditation instructor might say, well, you already know how to love other people. You know, here's some examples. Pick the one that's most powerful, the person that you love the most, and connect with that feeling that you're very familiar with already. Now, translate that familiar thing to something, into this area that is unknown and uncharted, and let's see what happens. And so for you, you you were able to hold on to it for a minute, and then it slipped away. But we, I think, yeah, I think a minute is a push. I'd say ten seconds. Yeah, you know, yeah. but that's that's oftentimes <laughs> um, that's a big part of get, gaining and generating that that permanent self love is in the beginning is always you know reengaging with it over and over because we it will slip uh, slip through our fingers you know and then we have to grab it again and be like oh yeah I'm talking bad about myself and remind ourselves that's not where we want to be that's not where we want our mind and go grab for that self love. Yeah, I think the the single biggest step you can make in meditation that I made and then I've, I've kind of lost is <laughs> the uh, ability to not judge yourself when you're not doing it right or you're not succeeding and the idea of succeeding. Like when you can totally just smile at the fact that you suck at it, mm-hmm. like what they call the Buddha smile, like if you can just do that uh, every time you're like, ah, <laughs> my mind was went off again. All right, kind of let's go back. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that like and like bring just realize that the monkey mind can bring you joy. Like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, and that's, let's bring it back. Um, well, imagine if you could... Non-judgment yeah. is a big step. Imagine if you could apply that non-judgmental um, mindset to everything in your life, not just meditation, but say you develop it in meditation, right? I think meditation is like a training ground, right? It's, mm-hmm. like, a, it's like a field full of all these different exercise machines that you get to train yourself on, and it's, it's the setting, right? So you go in there and you want to train... Um, you know, that ability to be self-loving or something, you know, it just takes repetition. It takes reps before it becomes an automatic movement, before it becomes muscle memory or mind memory. You know, you have to, you have to rep it out. You gotta, you know, gotta put it under load. You gotta put it under pressure. You gotta test it, you know, and then keep coming back. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, the meditation. Like I, I'm not, I'm a newbie at meditation for more or less. You know, I, I, I practice it. I see the benefits. I try to do it. Uh, same with yoga. Um, and I found that this last month has been rough because I kind of fell off my, my patterns. Mm-hmm. I was uh, down at a conference in Atlanta and, uh, and that just threw off my entire like mm-hmm. week. And then when I came back, I was like, well, you know, you use excuse. I was off a week. So this week doesn't count. And then one week leads into another. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm like, okay, I really got to get on. Cause I got that half Ironman at the end of uh, June. So nice. I'm like, Oh, like I have to really get on my swimming and everything. Yeah. So, so again, trying to re-engage with exercise, how do you battle? How do you personally, what skills do you use to, to battle that negative voice inside, to turn it into a, if your outcome goal is to get more positive self-dialogue and self-esteem and self-confidence and um, self-love, how do you turn down that, that volume of the, of the negative voice? I think the users could, or the listeners could really benefit from someone who has a psychology background um, explaining the tool that you actually use. 
Well, you know, it's funny because I, uh, <laughs> I, can, I can give you lots of strategies on how yeah. to do it, you know, yeah. uh, which sounds more like... Uh, the ones that work for you. Uh, yeah, exactly, right? Because that's the idea is it's easier to, to preach than it is to practice. Right. And I think that's a big part of my, my dilemma is that I, I know, and I think a lot of people are like this, that they know what to do. It's just the doing part. Yeah. Uh, for me overall, I, I would say I don't have a lot of negative thoughts. Um, I'd say the negative thoughts always come around like uh, what other people are thinking of me. So like I always externalize my negative thoughts and I project them on other people. Mm-hmm. And so I, give, I think that's, give us an example of that. Real quick. Like, uh, so living out of my truck, right. Mm-hmm. I might see someone like walk by and see me like climbing in the back of my truck. And then I might think about what they're thinking about me for like the next, like, you know, however long it feels like an eternity, but it's probably like 15 seconds. Yeah. Like your brain can't hold on to negative thoughts for very long or any thought. Right. <laughs> and so, um, and so I'll think about like, Oh, well, you know, uh, what if they think it's really weird or what do they think if I'm a creepy or like all this different, like stress, like stressful mind stuff that goes on. Um, uh, that's probably the biggest one. And so like other people still mess me up, man. Like, so when other, when you, when you find yourself in those thought patterns of like, I wonder if they think I'm homeless or I wonder if they, you know, I wonder what they think about me. Um, how do you, how do you switch your thinking into a different mode? The, the best thing that works for me is, uh, I use actually kind of a mantra. Uh, I just say, let go. And then nice. when I say let go, I also try to relax my shoulders cause I feel like I, ha- I hold a lot of tension in my shoulders and my upper back. So I make a conscious effort to kind of like drop and relax those at the same time. Good. And so I kind of correlate those two together. Absolutely. Yeah. So mantras are fantastic because um, one little word or one little phrase um, can encapsulate so much meaning um, so that you don't have to recite to yourself, you know, two paragraphs of meaning that you need to remind yourself about, like relax the shoulders, let go of the thoughts, um, feel calm, focus on your breath. I'm sure all those things are encapsulated in that one mantra, let go. Right. And so that's how mantras can be super useful and almost like a, like a trigger word or a trigger phrase to elicit um, the responses that you want from your body and your mind. Right. Again, it goes back to training. So you can train. And we do this with athletes all the time. Right. You can train um, an athlete to perform in a very specific way uh, with a very specific trigger word. So um, one of the most one, I worked with a javelin thrower once. And uh, he wanted to increase his distance, right? That's the purpose of javelin throwing, throw it mm-hmm. as far as possible. So um, what we did was we trained um, a mantra. It was a, I call it a trigger word or a trigger phrase with them, but it's the same thing as a mantra. And we used the word boom because it had both uh, visual um, connection to him. Throw, like he could visualize himself throwing the javelin and saying boom at the moment of release. So it had a visual component. It had a feeling or emotion attached to it. So the word boom elicited in him like um, an explosion of strength and power, which is what he needed to throw it. Um, and and that so he would he would train himself in this, and then in a competition or in practice, as he runs up to the line, he would literally say boom to himself as he threw it and he ended up getting much further um, distances with that trigger word or phrase we can do the same thing with any behavior that we want so for you you know the 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 desired target was to you know reduce the thinking about you know what other people are thinking about you and what what they could be judging you 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 can't really read your mind and relax yeah I just don't like the idea of like ever reducing or like stating anything like the I, I just like the idea of let go because then it's like yeah. emptiness, yes. blankness. It's zero. 
it's the idea of not letting go, but that idea of not not grasping either, and um, and kind of that Zen mm-hmm. kind of idea. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it means to me, anyways. Yeah. I love how you talked about the the Buddha smile, right? Um, because I feel like again, if we can apply, and that's why I was talking about this is a training ground, right? Meditation is a place where you can develop your Buddha smile mm-hmm. so that you can use it in your daily life, right? If you get really good at laughing at yourself and smiling when you when you make meditation mistakes, right? You go out into everyday life and shit happens, right? Say someone cuts you off. Well, instead of getting angry and having road rage, you apply your Buddha smile, right? And then you can laugh at uh, the fact that this person's probably going to get pulled over three miles down the road, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can apply the Buddha smile to, you know, arguments or, you know, I lost my wallet. Well, I can smile and laugh at that because I'm a freaking idiot, right? And and you have much less chronic stress, less disease, you know, all these things. So that's why I say meditation is a is a training ground to develop any number of skills. And why I integrate it into each and every one of my sessions is because I want to teach my clients a new mental skill set at every single session, something that they can walk away with and and train themselves in in the next week um, so that you you know you fill up your tool bag for so you have a tool for any situation any situation you can deal with well, there's lots of tools I mean it all comes down to I guess like I always think about paradigms of thinking so you know in psychology they have uh, I forget it's I forget what the triangle's called every single time but the idea is that there's cognitive psychology behaviorism and then you have um, emotive psychology, and those are the kind of the three paradigms of psychology. And then everything else is just kind of a mix, mm-hmm. or a subfield, or, or a subfield. Yeah. yeah, right. Like uh, like CBT is kind of like my go-to for like working in the schools, if I can, if I if I think I can get buy-in from the kid. If not, then it's got to go like more behaviorism or like uh, solution focus, which mm-hmm. is kind of like a person-centered, emotive type more. Uh, the listeners have no idea what. Yeah, what you're sorry about, about that. <laughs> uh, Ah. That's okay. Yeah, that's that's a perfect segue for us to uh, to get into in the, in the second segment. So, there we go. so for all of our listeners out there, uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. So please stick around. Uh, we'll be right back with Dustin, and uh, we're, yeah, we're going to get into some really really good stuff in the next segment. Um, stuff that we've been itching to talk about. So please stick around. And uh, here's a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, we're back with Dustin Taylor. Thank you for sticking around through that quick commercial break. Um, so before the break, Dustin and I were talking about uh, different forms of therapy, sort of like this triad of, of uh, different ways in the field of psychology that people um, tend to find themselves or professionals tend to associate with one of these three um, modes of overall overarching general uh, ways of thinking. And um, so go ahead and explain. You were explaining uh, cognitive behavioral psychology, emotive therapy, yeah. and uh, behaviorist uh, viewpoints. So yeah, the, the idea is that uh, everything we do think or feel is connected. And the question is, you know, chicken before the egg, which starts first? So cognitive psychologists believe that our thoughts will drive our actions or perhaps our our emotions, but generally our actions, and then actions create our emotions. Uh, and then the emotive psychologists believe that our emotions are what start first, and um, and then behaviorists believe that everything we do, say, feel comes from actions originally, and then actions will eventually create who we are. Uh, and I mean, there's something to be said for all of them. That's why they all exist, right? And they're all useful. Um, yeah. I think it's I think it's important for me anyway as a developing practitioner. Um, to be 
well-versed in each type, right? I want to be well-rounded so that if a client comes to me, uh, you know, and they don't take to, to CBT right off the bat, then I need to be able to adjust my approach as a therapist to try and meet the client with, with what they're bringing to the table, meet them where they're at so that I can connect and build that rapport, right? And you define yourself as an eclectic uh, psychologist. I do. So yeah. eclectic, If for you listeners who don't know what that means, eclectic psychotherapy means that I take bits and pieces from all the different types of uh, philosophical and practice thought, uh, theory and practice, applied practice around uh, psychology. So I take what works in any given situation, and I'm not boxing myself into one methodology, right? So yeah. you may get on like psychology today and look up a therapist, and you will find People who say, I am just a psychoanalyst. I am just a CBT therapist. I am just a behaviorist, you know, um, and I don't like to box myself in. I think they're all useful, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so I, I, I can see that idea, but I think, I think everybody has a certain leaning. I think if we were to even explore yourself, you have, I have a, certain, a leaning. Yeah, yeah right, a leaning, mm-hmm. right? And so that leaning, I think... I think it's good to become an expert in that leaning. Mm-hmm. And so that way you are an expert in one area. And that's something I lack also. I tend to have an eclectic point of view. I've, uh, I've been trying out different things within the school setting. You know, I really started with solution focus, which is the idea of, you know, the miracle question. If all your problems disappeared today and tomorrow, you know, you woke up and everything was better, what would be, how would your day go? Like if all your problems didn't exist in that day and your day just had, you just had a perfect day mm-hmm. and then you kind of like try to draw the different parallels between, okay, what's your normal day and what's your perfect day and, you know, provide your perfect day. You have to go to work and stuff like that. It's, it's like a perfect normal day. <laughs> uh, and so comparing you can those- even ask like, what's your perfect job? And compare it to the job you have now and be like, yeah. well, what's the differences there and how can you get to that perfect job? Exactly. Nobody, uh, that's step one is acknowledging the problems, mm-hmm. you know, and so many people have like, they just, they feel so stressed out mm-hmm. all the time and they don't really know why they feel stressed out. And it's that taking that time, it's no matter what you do, taking that time to be like, why am I stressed out? What's right. going on? That's that 10-minute investment. You know, It doesn't even have to be mm-hmm. meditation, but just 10 minutes to check in with yourself a day. Uh, maybe even in the shower, right? You got, and Get creative with your, with your self-examination, people. You know, If you say you don't have time to sit down for 5 or 10 minutes to do this, like incorporate it into something that you're already doing. You know? uh, I do a lot of self-reflection in the shower. You know, because showering is so automatic, you know, I have a specific routine of which body parts I wash in certain order, you know, my mind can wander and I can, I can contemplate these questions like asking yourself, uh, what is the problem? You know, once you identify the problem now, now we have some, some grounds. Now we have some traction. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's like how you start your day. It's, so there's, like I said, like, I love research. I love research. And, and as far as research goes, if you really want to make a change in your life, undisputably the two things you can do is one uh write down do gratitude journaling in the morning uh three things that you're grateful for bar one like it's been shown to to improve pretty much everything (laughs) and then meditation is the other one uh do that at some point like and neither one of those all the research is is overwhelming on those and neither one of those uh so some people might be out there and say like, well, well, I have a pill or something that does that for me. You know, that's even less effort than a gratitude journal. Yeah, but gratitude journal and meditation, I'm telling you right now, has zero negative side effects that I know of. You right. know, I've never heard of anybody feeling worse because they meditated or feeling worse because they took that time. 
No, no, I, you know, I work with kids, so I try to get them to meditate sometimes. And, and I've gone the, you know, I like, I'm more stressed out now. Yeah. <laughs> trying to, trying to teach people. Yeah. Well, well me, but like I get that report from the kids, like after a meditation session. And I think that's, that tends to happen at the beginning. I think when you first start, you get a lot of these kind of bad feelings and, uh, you know, I, maybe not for all people, but I think for some people it's, it's really is a challenge and like it, it doesn't make your life better to, to, cause you start realizing what the hell's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so there's, I forgot what the, what the term is, but, um, that uh, it's almost like a refractory period where this happens a lot in any form of, um, therapy or treatment like that, that oftentimes the problem gets worse or it seems to get worse before it gets better. Right. But the problem's not really getting worse. The problem is the same. It's that Perception. you, yeah, you have gained greater awareness of the problem. And so it seems worse because you know more about the details of it. Um, the problem isn't any worse. Okay. So, so take a deep breath and calm down feel happy that you know more about your problem now than you did before. It may seem more stressful, but that's, that stress is what's going to drive you to find that solution. And the fact that you took the time to self-examine is giving you that opportunity to make that change. That's spot on. I mean, I, I can't think of a better way to say it. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I like um, that. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll touch on CBT cause we talked about that a little bit. And, and that's I, probably where I would lean most towards. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually lean towards neuropsych the most, uh, and it leans, it draws a lot from psychoanalysis mm-hmm. for its studies and stuff, but I like to see what's happening in the brain specifically and what's going on there, but I don't know enough about it to like implement it. Uh, I did the, like an advanced neuroscience thing recently and they talked about the seven primes, seven affective primes, which is kind of a new thing. So if you're if you're into neuroscience and you want to Google that. Yeah, I'll check that out for sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, for CBT, it's a, uh, it's idea that we challenge thoughts that happen in the past. So they might have a negative uh, self cycle. Like I can't do something. And then we use behavioral strategies to say, okay, you're going to do this small step or do a small goal towards something. And then they do it. And once they do that, accomplish that we start adding more so the idea that behaviors will change your thoughts but that thoughts are creating behaviors mm-hmm. so, yeah connectedness yeah i i think i align myself um again i'm eclectic so i i think everything all of them are useful in their own ways but cbt seems to make the most sense to me um because i i'm a believer that everything starts in the mind every single action that, that you take Every breath that you take, whether even if it's an automatic action that you're not conscious of, um, or, or a conscious action that you're conscious of, I think everything starts in the mind. When you say starts in the mind, what do you mean by the mind? So that's that's the thing, right? <laughs> so um, when I refer to the mind, I think I refer to consciousness, um, and I guess you know I have a a bad habit of not delineating between the two. Um, I think consciousness is our deepest level. Um, it is the deep, it is, I think consciousness is what the universe is made out of literally is energy. Um, and the mind is simply a tool that we use to engage with the body and with the brain. The body and the brain are tools in and of themselves. Uh, they're physical tools that we can use to engage with this physical reality that we live in, right? The physical reality has a lot of learning lessons. Uh, everybody knows that, right? We're learning lessons every day through our physical interactions. But I feel like um, the mind is um, simply a tool. So the mind is constantly running. It's constantly 
doing its thing. It's constantly bringing in new thoughts and working with them and problem solving and stuff. But there's a higher level of consciousness that I find in meditation. So you can sit in meditation and observe the mind, right? Mm-hmm. You can observe the mind working. Yeah. But who's do what's what's the observation point? Who's doing the observing? That's the deeper level. That's consciousness. Um, the the I am, you know, okay. um, that is that is you at your core, and you can observe the mind because it works just like a tool. You can observe a tool working, and you can learn how to use that tool to its greatest efficiency, um, and then also use the mind to to do the body stuff. So when I say everything happens in the mind first, I mean that everything happens at that subtle energy level first. So um, whether I'm aware of my breathing or not all day long, um, there's something else in control of that that is that is in control of my body, that is in control of my diaphragm making that happen every single day. Um, I don't know. That's where, that's where I sit with it. Um, so I, I tend to sway more towards the cognitive behavioral because they would say that it all starts in the mind as well. That your thoughts, you know, shape your, your thoughts and your beliefs shape your emotions and how you respond to things. And then therefore, um, your behaviors will lead to that. Yeah. 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 I mean, lead out of that. I, I, I think the evidence is there, right? I mean, they, they've done studies and they've shown like for depression, like CBT pretty much works the best. Well, quotations, the best, right? Cause we know that 70% of a therapy is the therapeutic relationship. Right. It's not even the methodology. Right. So it's how, how well do you connect with your therapist? And if you don't connect, it's not going to work. I don't care what they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's building that connection. Uh, but I forgot where I was going. Oh, neuroscience. Uh, with the neuroscience, like I really enjoy neuroscience. And I kind of talked about how I don't know enough about it to really like implement it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I really like to see like the changes in the brain and the... The fact, I think the biggest thing I love about neuroscience right now is the idea that everyone kind of on the on the cusp, on the front end of neuroscience is saying, look how much we don't know and look how much we're finding out. Like, it's a really exciting time. Mm-hmm. And so I think maybe I'm just kind of caught up in that excitement. Yeah. <laughs> the, the field is wide open, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, it's wide open. We've been doing a lot of... Um, uh, biofeedback in the sports psychology realm, working with athletes, learning, uh, teaching teaching athletes how to control things like uh, breath rate, heart rate, um, circulation rate. Um, you can control your metabolism um, through mental controls, um, things like that. And using biofeedback and neurofeedback to be able to train the brain is is really cool. Um, but speaking of, I you know I. You brought up lucid dreaming before, yeah. and you said you've been starting to do that recently. I want I want you to talk to you know I want to hear about what your lucid dreaming has been like, but also what you think neuroscience says about lucid dreaming because I haven't heard much uh, in in the realm of what yeah. neuroscience was what's going on in the brain specifically when we're when we're lucid dreaming. Uh, I mean, I would say that the research on lucid dreaming from a neuroscience standpoint right now is extremely circumstantial. <laughs> I would say there's really nothing concrete for lucid dreaming, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, there are some interesting things that kind of pick up like uh, some slight brainwave shifts or maybe more time and let's say like uh, REM sleep versus like deep sleep mm-hmm. or your different cycles of sleeping might be altered a little bit. I think, uh, I, what really got me into it was the idea that um, you first use lucid, lucid dreaming, and, and for everyone, lucid dreaming is the idea that you become aware of your dreams and then you can control everything that happens in them. And so 
Um, using that not just to fly around and like to have sex with tons of women or like have tons of fun, but to like meditate within your lucid dreaming and mm-hmm. go to like a next level. And uh, that's the only reason I started even considering it because I was like, that's if you think about the fact that uh, within REM sleep, uh, time moves three times as fast. We use that as a compression time, and that's mm-hmm. where we. So that's them. why dreams, like a dream that may only last twenty minutes, seems like it lasts like an hour or days. Like yeah. you can go through like a week's worth of timeline in your dream, but it only lasts like twenty minutes. Well, with the ones that like where you feel like you went through a week, there's a lot of gaps. Yes. So like you're not really you're like experiencing little clips of every different day, right. and yeah. But but yeah, I totally agree. I feel like there's sometimes it seems I feel like I've let like there was a dream I had when I was a kid that I thought I was like an entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and it so. could have been it could have very well been. I've heard some theories yeah. too that um, you know I've been I've I've been a lucid dreamer since I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. But I've uh, so dreams have always been fascinating to me in in not just um, you know um, I don't even know the term for it anymore. You know, some people, uh, a lot of people discount the value of dreams, you mm. know, um, yeah, yeah. that they're just phenomenon in the brain, um, things like that. I do believe that, that dreams serve a purpose for uh, problem solving, you know, um, we'll take aspects of our daily life, uh, problems that we're having or we're trying to sort through, and our dreams are a way for our, our brain to play with um, abstract solutions. Um, so sometimes you wake up. And you'll, you'll just be like, oh, I have an answer for that thing I was worried about yesterday or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Again, what Einstein said, changing your mindset, right? You go into a dream state, you literally change your mind, and you find the solution, right? Um, but it's so interesting. You say, you know, going into a lucid dream and then realizing you're dreaming and then meditating in your dream and then breaking through to an entirely new dimension or plane of existence um, I want you to riff off of that for a minute because we had another guest on the podcast talking uh, in the past about how monks um, like in, in the Asian countries were meditating and literally going, they were reporting they were going or uh, going to different dimensions and creating entire landscapes, like creating a, an entire planet in their mind. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that, yeah, they're creating it in their mind, but that planet could also be a real thing in a different dimension, uh, different dimensional space. And who are we to say that that's any less real than what we experience here in the third dimension, right? That these monks are actually going to these places in their minds and creating other worlds, like for real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I would say that, like you said, who's to say, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's no evidence one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And so I won't go one way or the other, (laughs) like, I mean, until I experience it and I have uh, have something like that, but that's if, the only evidence I really ever need is yeah. tr- is experience. If I experience it, I I take that pretty strongly on faith, and then I do a lot of analysis, <laughs> like years of analysis sometimes on on certain experiences where I'm like, I don't know, like does it seem still seem real? Does it still seem like that's the truth of things? Mm-hmm. Like my connectedness, like I still believe that's the truth. I believe things are connected. But as far as like building another place, I would say at the very least. They, if they did it repeatedly and they went back to the same place, it'd almost be creating like a visual image in your head. And the amount of information you could put in that. So I, I've been doing a lot of research on learning and memory, mm-hmm. and like you talk about memory palaces and how to like, 
um, to memorize stuff better. But that'd be like the ultimate memory palace. It'd be like building your own planet where you know where every plant is and uh, like you're essentially a god, more or less. So is that, uh, with the memory palace, is that sort of like making... Um... A sort of mnemonic device to remember certain memories so like you're maybe you're studying a textbook and you're like i really have to memorize this metabolic chain and so i'm going to visually put it in this place in the palace so that when i need to recall it i know exactly where that answer is so i i kind of skipped over it because i i was uh kind of hesitating to describe what a memory palace is uh-huh. because it's really hard to do without visuals <laughs> but sounds um, cool yeah i mean so the uh, uh, there's a guy he he has a podcast uh, Anthony Mativier uh, Magnetic Memory he does a lot of memory stuff there's uh, Jonathan Levi a, a super learner or human learner something like that and they both talk about these things a lot better than me but um, what you can do is you can build like a bird's eye view let's say a blueprint of your house and then you can make each room have something in it so um, if you had like a list of things to remember. Then you put like that item. Let's say a lot of people say it's a grocery list. Everyone does a grocery list, right? Uh, Which which is fine, but uh, the idea I like the idea of memory palaces being that if you were to use them, you want to use them for stuff you want to remember. Like let's say you're learning another language, so like Spanish words, and so you could throw a Spanish word in each room. Like into your room, you could say cuarto, and then into the bathroom, baño, and then of course you're not going to do that for every single one. But let's say the next room, you could say you know. I can't roll my R's, but pedal, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm working on, by the way. Perro. Uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you can throw that into one. And so then with each with each image, uh, so you want to you want to make an image of what you're trying to associate with the idea. So like cuarto is the room itself. So you probably want to think of another like noun or another image that you could shrink down. So like a dollhouse or. Um, uh, it, and that's another thing with all these ideas of memories is that you want to make them yourself. Because if you rely on other people to make them, mm-hmm. then they aren't as effective. They're for not you. as powerful. Yeah. It's just like with goal setting, too. If someone else yeah. sets your goals, they're not as effective. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, but let's say the dog. The dog's the easiest one. So you throw a dog in one room, and then you want to remember, uh, you know, pedal for the dog. So P-E-R, and then R-O. And then you say R-O is like rough, like short for rough, like ah. And then P-E-R is, uh, I always think of, I'm have to think of butt in Spanish, you know, because <laughs> it's the other one. But uh, you could think of... Uh, now, a peregrine falcon, I don't know. I'm just thinking of things right now. Uh, oh, that wouldn't work. See, this is where I struggle. This is where I struggle. But, yeah, I know you create actions. So the idea is in every room you want to have a place, an action, and a noun. Mm-hmm. And you want to associate them all together hmm. and move through the palace. But, yeah, yeah, I'd definitely Google it because it's, it's super hard to describe without pictures. Okay. Um, so tell me about this, this idea that you brought up about uh, lucid dreaming and then meditating while in a lucid dream. Oh, yeah, so I, um, that was, I think Jonathan Levi was the one who brought that up. And, um, yeah, I mean, if, if you think about the benefits of meditation, right, and you're like, well, why don't I get the benefits of meditation while I'm sleeping? It's like the ultimate, uh, well, I think called the biohack, but ultimate, <laughs> you know, uh, multitasker in my opinion, which, which I, number one, you don't want to multitask, always unitask. If you unitask, you'll find you have more time in the day than if you multitask. Mm-hmm. I mean, productivity. Tip 101. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Applied yeah. mindfulness right there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I know it's, it's uh, I thought about it just as like, that'd be pretty awesome. Like if I could get to that point, but I'm at the point where I don't even, when I remember my memories, they seem so realistic that I don't remember them until later. So I'm not even at the point where I'm really writing it down. Cause the first step is to have a dream journal with like a 
pencil or uh, pen ready. Ideally, no blue light if you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and write something down. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, you just write down your, your dream journal as you wake up. But I haven't even gone to that point. I don't think I have one thing in there. But once I get to that point, once you start remembering your dreams, then you can start, uh, you know, slowly you'll start like recognizing. And there's certain like tips, like some people talk about turning on or off a light within a room. Mm -hmm. Other people looking, uh, you know, the front and back of your hand. But so the problem with these things is that you have to do them during the day because you have to habituate yourself to do these kind of like on a regular basis. So you can start acknowledging when you're lucid dreaming. So Yeah. And the more you write about it, the more you start to recognize yourself in the dream. Right. Yeah. So it's like, uh, like the gratitude practice, right? The more you practice the gratitude journal and write down things you're grateful for, the more you're going to notice or recognize in your daily life that you can be grateful for, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's repetition and application into your daily life as well. Um, so for me, when I'm lucid dreaming, <clears throat> I, um, I know that I'm dreaming because I can't read clocks. I can't read digital anything uh, or text. Um, oftentimes, oh. like if I'm trying to read a sign in my dreams, the words are all, the letters are always be jumbled, and I'll try so hard to put them together, and that's when I know, oh, I'm in a dream because I can't read um, this clock or something, and then all of a sudden I can control it. Do you get faces really well? Yeah, I, I yeah. see faces. It's okay, just normal. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So. Um, yeah, lucid dreaming is fascinating. I've never taken it to a place of meditation. Never even considered that in a lucid dream. Usually, it is doing stuff that, uh, like impossible feats that I could never do, like um, turning the world into a trampoline world and bouncing from here to work, or uh, or breathing underwater and swimming around like that. Or I love that you still went to work in your lucid dream. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe it was a different work, but it was yeah, yeah it, it was, was good. still that's, mm -hmm. that's pretty cool. Yeah. One. You're always like you have that mindset where you're always giving something, which is which is a good mindset to have. Yeah, you know. Well, since I was a kid, <clears throat> I always felt pulled towards helping, like helping people. Um, I can remember in elementary school. Um, I think I was in second grade, and because of my behavior on the playground, the teachers recruited me and signed me up for this. Um, this conflict resolution class so that, uh, you know, there are like three of us in there and we took this week long instructional on how to resolve conflict on the playground. And so, um, after that, um, you know, we were like designated peer supporters and this was like in elementary school. So when kids on the playground were having a tough time or there was bullying going on, like instead of the teachers dealing with it, they would send the kids to me, you know, like mm -hmm. the peer support. And I would, help mediate their conflict resolution with my limited second grade <laughs> skills, right? That's awesome. So from a young age, like I was, and I loved it. I loved it back then. Uh, I loved being someone that people could go to for help. Um, and so I was always kind of driven towards those helping professions. And I think you're right. Like, that's why it shows up in my dreams. That's why I'm a jujitsu coach too. Um, that's why I do this podcast for free and like put this message out. Like I'm here to... I'm here on this planet to learn as much as I can, but also to help as many people as I can, you know? And I think we're all here for that reason, to help as many people as we can, but not all of us uh, subscribe to our own um, reasons why we're here. Right, I mean, I think, I think the science shows that, uh, you know, socialization and interaction with others is like the only way to live. Like, increases depression, shortens lifespan if you don't. <laughs> so, uh, and like, 
when you live collectively or live, you know, have a relationship with multiple people, mm-hmm. it has to be interactive. Like you have to do things. So I think the science is totally there. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier how we have kind of like a, a similar childhood, like different SES, but it's kind of interesting how, like, I think you talk about that experience of helping people. And for me, it was, uh, I think I might even have kind of like a, a bitterness towards it. Cause I, I grew up, you know, like, uh, six, you know, growing up with my mom all the way up to six and the mood of my grandfather. And, uh, my mom had no idea what she was doing as far as parenting. Like mm-hmm. she used to, she told me pretty much about my entire childhood. So I have like this segment of memory of like what I remember and what she told me. But, uh, she told me one time that like, um, as far as the, hold on, what was I talking about? Your childhood. Childhood. And your, your mother. Yeah. Um, but what, what led me into that? I don't know. We were, we were on the topic of, uh, dreaming. Uh, well, as far as like our differences. As, right. Yeah. Um, and she used to tell me like, you know, uh, you know, always punch somebody in the face. Like if they, you know, if they mess they with you, mess with you, right. Stand yeah. up for yourself. Right. But yeah, but I grew up, I was like this totally shy kid and, uh, and reflecting on now, like I was probably like totally neglected as like a kid. Cause like, <laughs> cause like my behavior is like, like certain things you pick up on. And like my mom told me like, yeah, you never cried. You're fine. Like really quick. Like I never cried. Like the baby. Like, and she like left me in a room by myself. <laughs> like, but she didn't know. Right. And so, uh, learning about all these things as like a psychologist later on, you're like, holy fuck. <laughs> no wonder I'm so screwed up. <laughs> right. yeah. uh, and, but, uh, she would ask me for a lot of advice, like, or she would just talk to me about her life, like boyfriend and stuff like that. Which is cool in one way because she always uh, she always told me I had the final say on whether or not uh, a boyfriend would, like would be in my life essentially, and so she gave me a lot of power as a small kid, which I would if you're a parent out there I would recommend you don't do that. Uh, there's been way too much of that crap. Like people are I get all these parents uh, just talking to their kids saying like oh well what do you think i'm like he's eight years old he doesn't know what the hell he thinks do you tell him what he thinks <laughs> you tell him what he thinks until like 12 and then mm-hmm. then you start asking so you're saying parents are giving their kids way too much agency too early yeah i yeah well their brain isn't developed oh for handle sure those things yeah well i mean yeah and you see it firsthand all the time as a school psychologist you literally work in the schools with the kids right and you yeah. see the kids point of view the teacher's point of view the administrator's point of view and the parents point of view you get to see the whole picture, whereas most people only see their own point of view because that's where they're at. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, kind of on the topic real quick is that um, I think the schools are actually doing a pretty decent job. I've done the research, and I was really critical of schools, and I still am very critical of schools. Uh, but that being said, <laughs> uh, the research also shows that like there's a 10 to 20% variance uh, on the outcome of a person's life uh, from school, uh, 50% variance from home. So their home is really the biggest impact mm-hmm. on who they, and we talk about that, like you are who you, you, you become who you, the formation of your personality is formed in the first six to eight years. So kind of understanding those years of being highly critical and kind of getting, and like what to do, you know, of course, like after eight years, there's tons of stuff we can, we can change now, even as I'm 36 years old and I can, I'm making huge life changes and changing my brain and my body and everything. Mm-hmm. Like there's never too late to make changes, but that being said, those changes need to come from kind of looking at the, that time period. Yeah, so um, in the way that I've learned about it in like developmental psychology is that a lot of our uh, conceptualization of the world and reality and how the world works comes from those younger formative years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that we do most of our learning as a kid, not through 
uh, verbal instruction, so not through parents telling us what's right and wrong, but rather through watching other people and seeing what mistakes they make. So we actually learn a lot more through <clears throat> watching our parents uh, behave. So make sure that you're modeling correct behaviors. Yeah, um, scientific fact. Very the, important. They have different brain waves before the age of six, uh, yeah. and they, they have implicit learning. And yeah not able to have explicit learning. Like yeah, so they, they imprint based off of uh, memories of how you deal with stress and how you deal with um, anger and, and all these things. They imprint that as like, this is how I need to respond as well. Um, so yeah, from a developmental age, that's what I learned as well, that their brains are not yet fully formed. The frontal cortex isn't able to rationalize things like we are as adults. And so we should not expect them to be able to do that, right? right. So a lot of, I'm sure a lot of school psychology is like this because a lot of my sports psychology is like that when I'm dealing with a parent of a youth athlete, mm -hmm. um, is that the parents often have adult expectations that they put on their kids. Um, like you need to wake yourself up every single day at 5 a.m. and get yourself to practice and do all these things that you would expect an adult to do, but they're expecting their seven or eight-year-old to do, you know? Um, and, you know, we need to educate parents that, that a child's brain is totally different, you know? They don't, we don't get that education in normal school, you know? We live it, but then we forget. We forget that, that we didn't know shit when we were 10 and 11 and 12, right? But right. we thought we knew everything. And it, it's interesting you bring that up because I always... I always forget about what other people don't know. You know, I forget there's there's a term for it in psychology where once you know something, you just believe everyone else knows the same thing you know. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, so it's like, yeah, you want to get on the mountaintop, just be like, hey, people, <laughs> listen up. <laughs> this is this is pretty much like one of the better ways is to like to, you know, give them structure. They need structure. They need they need to be able to understand that there's a predictable reality to some extent that. Uh, you know, this is the way things are going to go for the most part. And then they need to understand how to deal with things when they don't go that way. Mm -hmm. Those so are two things. That's perfect. A uh, <laughs> little segue, because I think you and I talked about this the other day at the coffee shop that, you know, one of my major interests going into my PhD program in the fall is um, developing and researching uh, preventative mental health programs, uh, specifically for kids uh, in the elementary and middle school ages. Um, even a curriculum-based thing. So developing like a mindfulness curriculum as well as like a, a consciousness education um, curriculum mm -hmm. and inserting that into um, yearly schedules, right? So so the kids would go to school like normal. They'd take their science, their math, their history and stuff, and then they'd go to a mindfulness class or their consciousness class where they would learn concepts um, about various theories of the mind, how to engage with the mind, um, teaching them uh, resiliency things like emotional regulation skills, mm -hmm. emotional intelligence, teaching them even what emotions are and how to deal with them, um, and then also teaching them the basic mindfulness skills. So how to sit with your emotions rather than being reactive to them, how to work with them um, rather than letting them control you. And I think that, um, like we already have some uh, preliminary evidence from, I think it's uh, Oregon and Washington where they've implemented mindfulness and meditation into their schools and found significant increases in academic performance and behaviors in the schools as well as behaviors at home. Um, so instead of giving these kids detention when they'd act out, they'd make them go to meditate, you know, and, and yeah. it's shown good results. So I think expanding that even further, I think the future of mental health is in preventative mental health mm -hmm. um, so that we don't even have to uh, have as high incidences of mental health that we uh, that we do now if we can if we can teach people how to 
think about their mind and consciousness and how to deal with emotions properly um, early on, I think we're going to have much less incidence of uh, ADHD and bipolar and all these things and over-medication and all these excessive costs that we as taxpayers end up having to pay into the health system to manage mental health throughout lifetime. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think prevention is... I mean, Ben Franklin, you know, said it the best, and I don't want to misquote him, but, you know, pretty much an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of intervention. Yes. Um, the idea that we can, if we can do something ahead of time, that's great. But that being said, I think it's an extremely, like, human development is, is still not really understood, uh, especially within the context of, like, the new world we're living in with the internet, you know, uh, you know, porn at the push of a button. Mm-hmm. Um just knowledge at the push of a button and and what it all means and how how kids are going to develop with this whole new thing so we don't know what we're doing nobody knows what they're doing and so i think we need to be really cognizant of that so and i i speak mostly because the uh the social emotional curriculums that have been put into place have have created i think more a sense of fragility among the kids um, and a more sense of like that we're going to take care of them that the adults are always going to do something and it's turned into this kind of uh you know, the teachers say, okay, well, you, you know, the school needs to take care of my kid. And the school's like, well, you need to, you know, take care of your kid. Right. Well, you said the research 50% comes from the home. Right. 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 So, so in a way, the teachers are right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'd actually say that. Um, parents should be stepping up. The majority of the time. Yeah. Because, so you look at your sample size, right? A teacher has seen thousands of kids. Mm-hmm. Generally, they know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. A parent has seen five kids, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, unless they're a teacher uh, or work in another field that's similar. But so, yeah, they're, they're just their sample size on what's normal, what's not normal. It, and you see everybody. No, actually, I see I see less kids than the teachers, I would say. I, I only see the high, uh, high intensity. I see the kids when they go to the counselors and they're still struggling with depression, uh, you know, suicidal thoughts, anxiety. I do, uh, like, um, intellectual testing for, like, disorders and various social-emotional testing, stuff like that. Uh, and then I have to implement interventions, and then I give those interventions to the teachers to implement. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a mixed bag. <laughs> but generally, I mean, I would have to say that, you know, 75% of teachers are working their asses off far more than they should. I actually, I tell them all, like, you need to, like, calm it down. Like, mm-hmm. take some time off. You shouldn't be working this late. Like, you're not getting paid. <laughs> like, I'm trying to tell them to, like, do more self-care, honestly. Yeah, but they have a real passion for helping the kids, too. Yeah, but within five years, half the field leaves the field wow. entirely the turnover rate is every five year it's like a five-year cycle five year for teachers that's incredible because yeah. a lot of the teachers i remember from high school middle school um continued to teach for decades yep. you know i would go back afterwards and visit them after i got my college degree you know i'd want to go and, and share that with them and say hey you helped me get this you know um so yeah there's a right now there's a split between that so you got the old teachers uh you know the Sorry. The veteran teachers. The veteran teachers, thank you. Thank you. The teachers have been doing it for over 10 years, you know, 10, 15 years, I'd say. Over 15 years. They've been doing it over 15 years. Then they knew a time when teaching was, like, as they described literally to me multiple times, different teachers, teaching was fun. Mm-hmm. They said teaching was fun. It is no longer fun. And now it's all these rules, regulations. Like, I, I put together these IEPs that, you know, and, like, behavior plans that say, okay, you know, if you see this behavior with this kid, like, you, you need to do these steps, right? 
uh, well, they might have five different behavior plans and 10 different IEPs and like maybe five other 504s. <laughs> like, so they have to, like, how are they really going to remember like what to do with every single kid? Right, and they're not and, counselors either. They're teachers. Yeah. And, but here's the kicker. They're legally responsible for implementing these things. Mm. And so they're concerned about losing their job because they're not implementing all these like different things that they're supposed to be implementing. Um, and so it's, it creates this dichotomy of like administration versus them. And then, it just it's it's crazy mixed up world. Mm. Uh, it sounds really ineffective. I mean, it sounds yeah. like people are really trying with the right intentions to correct the system, but um, it seems like uh, people are just throwing more gears into the machine trying to make it work. Um, well, I think so. Uh, if you look at motivation, right, like uh, intrinsic motivation. There's only three things that uh, drive intrinsic motivation, which is intrinsic motivation is our motivation that comes from within ourselves. And the, the three are, uh, one is um, differentiation. So we want things to be slightly different. We don't want a factory job where we're just doing the same like thing over and over again. Monotony is, yeah. Yeah. Monotony is uh, horrible. Number two is autonomy. We want to have, we want to feel like we have, so we, we don't necessarily need to have it. We just need to feel like we have some level of control over uh, what we do, how we do it. Uh, Not working for the man. Yeah. And if we are working for the man, we either believe in the man or we believe in what we're doing. Like, and mm-hmm. I think that would drive autonomy mm-hmm. to some extent. And then the last one is just, uh, it's kind of conglomerate. It's called social, emotional, uh, and uh, connectivity factors. So essentially... Uh, somebody will feel more motivated in their life if they feel more connected to others and they have a like, good social emotional uh, background. Mm-hmm. So those are like the only three things. Uh, and so I don't know why I went into that. Intrinsic motivation? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think it's just important to find what motivates us in our life. And I think a lot of people, I mean, there's different stats out there, but I heard recently 70% of people don't like their jobs, mm-hmm. don't like what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, trying to implement these things. I had another friend who's a school psych ask me about, um, like, oh, hey, like, how can I get more money? How can I do this? I'm like, well, dude, like, the money is kind of, like, if you look at it, like, every district says exactly what they pay for every teacher and everything. It's like it's prescribed, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean you can't, you can't get a couple grand more or maybe five grand more uh, out of a negotiation. But you're probably not going to. And so I, I just told him, told him was... Uh, Make a contract where you can structure your job. If you can get a job and say, hey, these are the things that are important to me. I want to do these things. Uh, even if it's within their thing, within their contract of like your responsibilities, pointing out what you really want to do, I think, is critical for any type of new job mm-hmm. because then you get to do more of those things generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that um, for most of my working life, I have worked these jobs where... You know, I feel I felt like I'm working for the man and I have to follow all their rules and I've had zero autonomy and I've hated a lot of the work that I've done. Um, you know, when I look back at my CV, I see patterns like I've, I've hardly ever been at a job more than two years at a time, you know, because it will just get so monotonous that I have to switch it up. I have to do something different um, because I start to lose interest. I start to get compassion fatigue and then my ability to provide effective services to people dwindles you know and I recognize that in myself you know I have to be stimulated so in this new job that I'm at when when I was negotiating the initial contract and this is the first job that I was ever recruited for mm-hmm. someone sought me out and said we want you on our team to do this for us I felt because I was recruited and I knew that they wanted me I felt some 
autonomy even in my negotiating power, right? So I sat down with them and I said, this is what I want to get paid. These are the days I want to work. These are the hours that I want to work. Um, this is uh, the creative freedom that I want when I'm running my group therapies. Uh, I don't want you to tell me how to run my groups. Uh, this is how I'm going to do it. And they were on board and um, I've loved this job ever since. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some more state policies have come down the pipe that, that make the job a little less uh, fun. But for the most part, yeah, uh, I feel some autonomy in it and it, and it feels much better. So you're talking about motivation. You know, it's important for us all to find that intrinsic motivator to keep us going. The research shows very clearly that intrinsic motivators not only work better than extrinsic motivators, but they work better for longer term um, sustainable motivation, right? So being able to sustain motivation over a lifetime or over a career or over an athletic career um, is important. You can't just have these external motivators of money or possessions or uh, whatever the extrinsic motivator is. So f for you, what is what is your biggest intrinsic motivator? What has it been now, and what is it what has it been in your life in general? I think right now, it's uh, the thing that really motivated me right now uh, is freedom. Like mm -hmm. I, I want to be at a place where I can do what I want, how I want, when I want. And the win is an especially, especially important part for me. Like I think uh, the next job I get, uh, if I do get a, uh, another full-time school psych job, um, I would probably negotiate like not coming in until nine, like uh, because we know that waking up before sunrise is not healthy for the body, uh, and waking up with an alarm clock isn't really that great. So like I would just schedule like I'll work late. Like if you need me to work late, I'll get like I want to have my job based on what I do, not the time I put in. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's going to be my next negotiation. Like, I'll, you give, give me every kid you want to test, I'll test them. But, but then I think on the side, I'd like, I'm going to do that family coaching and uh, getting that off the ground. Like, right now, I'm, I'm trying to get my business license for that. And, uh, I was thinking about doing, like, the psychotherapy route, but I just didn't want to do more schooling and more training. Uh, and right now, I'm a certified personal trainer, so by NASM, but, yeah. But, yeah, we'll see where that goes. And uh, But I'm only going to be in Colorado for a couple more months. I don't know how, like... I don't want to get started with the family, so I think I might just do personal training until I leave, and then, unless I can do it online, I guess. Nice. Yeah, yeah that's something that I, I really admire about uh, your life as it is right now, is that you lead that, you're leading like uh, that no, the nomadic life right now, you know, mm -hmm. sort of <clears throat> living, living in your truck, I think to a lot of people who hear that are like, oh my God, how could he do that? Like, that's one of my biggest fears, is being homeless, and... and not having a roof over my head, but for me, living that lifestyle that you are, not being tied to a mortgage or a rent or something, like that's extra freedom, you know? Um, I feel like, yeah, it's nice to, to own nice things and live in a house and have security that way, but it also feels really good to have the freedom to be like, okay, today I'm sleeping more down towards town and tonight I'm going to go up in the mountains and I'm going to sleep up there and I'm going to see the entire galaxy without the light pollution and then the next day I'm going to go to Utah and sleep there and you know so there's this freedom that I really admire about that um, and this journey that you're on right now the nomadic journey and it reminds me a lot of um, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey you know that you are you're on this path of self-discovery um, and that you're you know you're seems like you're trying to simplify a lot of your life so that you can focus more energy on what's really important to you. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I really like the idea that you mentioned on Simplify, because I, I tend to kind of, uh, Seneca, who was a Stoic philosopher, uh, I've been kind of following his route. I didn't even know about him, but he's, he, he, he's this type of guy who, back in ancient Greek times, had a, you know, um, gained a lot of money, because he was like, money's not important, but no one's going to believe me unless I, I get some. <laughs> so he'd get it all, then he got rid of it all, and uh, he would just wear these really ratty robes, and like, into, like, public places to get, to, like, decrease the ego, and uh, you know, not focus on what other people are thinking of him and stuff like that. So going back to what we were talking about before about your internal dialogue that's mostly focused on like wondering what other people are judging or thinking about you. For him, for what was his name? Seneca? Seneca See, that's what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah, I read some of, I've read some of his stuff, but so what he would do is he probably also had that same feeling inside. Like people are thinking weird things about me. I don't know what it is. So he uh, he would force himself into uncomfortable situations. He knew that about his ego, maybe, and put himself in so those situations where he got to challenge the ego. And really, that's where you get the opportunity to make really big improvements. Yeah, I think he was far more advanced than I am currently. Yeah, uh, you know, I didn't I didn't learn about him until. I told other friends I was living on my truck, and one of my friends from Greece was like, hey, <laughs> you sound like this philosopher. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. I looked up his life. I was like, oh, yeah, pretty close. You know, mm -hmm. Didn't get kicked out of the country, though, by Marcus Aurelius, but hey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Which Marcus Aurelius was a big meditator. Oh, too. dude, that guy's a genius. Have you read his book, Meditations? I haven't yet, I, but it's, I have it because you recommended it to yeah, me. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. Um, it's one of those... Um, I've been hearing nothing but good things about right. it from like things like people like Tim Ferriss and all the yeah. other people. Yeah. You know, it's one of those books that you just you. It's not one that you open up and read cover to cover. You know, because it's just a bunch of different um, small little blurbs of little thoughts it was and like insights a he had. Right. Yeah. And so it's good to like open up and read like one entry and then go sit in a five or ten minute meditation, just contemplate what he meant. You know, because it's, it's really deep uh, philosophy with Marcus Aurelius. A very good resource. Learning from the past, too, so that we don't repeat the, the failures of the past. Oh, God. It, it almost sucks to, like, look at the past and realize, if only I would have known this, like, so many times. Like, even to this extent, like, I have a voice journal where I keep track of my voice, like, all my thoughts and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so over the summer when I was doing all this meditating, like, I had thoughts on what to do over this next uh, year of, of work. And, uh, and I was listening to him because I'm teaching a sixth grade class on memory and learning skills. And uh, one of my recommendations in the summer that I made for that class was, like, don't teach it more than one day a week. That way you can build up the curriculum. And, like, I started two days a week, and it was too much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, if only I would have listened to myself mm -hmm. <laughs> just a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. I would have saved myself so many headaches. Yeah. Uh, but now I've reduced it, actually. So I've you know, trying to learn from my own mistakes. Yeah, I used to hate history. In, in school, but now looking back and, and studying history is so fascinating to me. Well, yeah, I think it comes with age. Like my grandfather even said that when I was younger, like he was doing the whole um, family tree thing, and I was like, I don't care. And he's like, yeah, you know, most, most kids don't care. He's like, once you get older, you begin to care more about the past, mm -hmm. and it's just kind of the way it is. I don't, you know, I think there's just a certain time. Like I want... Like for the sixth grade class right now, I'm like trying to force feed them information. Like, like you learn as much as you can, <laughs> and then I'm realizing like they're not learning really as much because I'm not taking time on like the mm. the subjects, right? And so it's kind of like pushing down your own ego and being like, okay, what's best for the the other people here? Right, letting go of 
what you think they should learn exactly. and teaching them what they're ready to learn. Right, yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah. So I want to um, touch on one, one thing because before the podcast we were talking about um, this quote that uh, I, I read at the beginning of the podcast that Einstein said about imagination versus uh, intelligence or um, mm-hmm. yeah. imagination versus knowledge and how Einstein said it's better to have imagination than it is to have knowledge because imagination is limitless and it can provide so much uh, more fruit um, you know if intelligence yeah. yeah than intelligence so what what do you think about that concept well I think intelligence is intelligence is captivated by the one thing you know what you know like you can't know more than the rest of humanity with intelligence it's impossible because your intelligence is based on how much you know of things we already know imagination takes you to that next level so imagination is that idea, like, what if, what if we're wrong about this, or what if, um, you know, beyond what we know, like the dark energy, the dark matter, connecting everything. Like, what if? Like, that's the imagination part, and that that's what drives humanity forward. That's what geniuses really are known for, are taking everyday things and saying, wait, why? What if? And asking these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of interesting how imagination and intelligence seem in the quote, um, to be separate, but can almost be seen as um, connected in a way like one leading to the other, right? So think about it this way, like, you know, in the in the f- 30s or the 20s, um, the idea of an atomic bomb was just a figure, figment of imagination. It was just something that people thought could be possible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, it was created, and now we have that knowledge that this thing exists and this is how it works and this is what happens when we explode it and so then the imagination of it becomes uh, intelligence it becomes knowledge right so Mm -hmm. elon musk right he imagines that one day we'll be able to um, travel to space right Uh, everyday citizen can travel to space so that's just imagination right now but through using his mind and his, his intelligence. I think he's, it's pretty far in SpaceX. I think it's pretty possible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, he's going to turn it into something that's yeah. just going to be common, and then it's just going to become common knowledge. So they are separate, but also they're connected in a way that one turns into the other. I mean, yeah, I, I can agree with that as far as, like, imagination. But imagination, once then, then again, is still leading the change. It's still leading the change. Sure. Like, the A-bomb couldn't have been made without the idea that, hey, what if we, you know, split two atoms? Like, you know, is that even possible? Sure. How would we do it? Um, and so imagination is really what drove it. And then other people got the knowledge. But I totally agree. So, like, if we look at memory and learning, I'm trying to teach the kids to, like, anchor ideas like so if you know one thing then it helps you know another thing so Mm. but you know i always use like math so uh to to be able to do four times four you have to understand what four plus four is and having that knowledge allows you to gain this new knowledge and now you have those two ideas connected you can then you can build more imagination through more knowledge yeah so like isaac asimov i think is great for that so he wrote a ton of like uh, I didn't even actually know he wrote anything other than the children's books because I just grew up reading him uh, as far as the space stuff. But Isaac Asimov has a lot of imaginary type stuff that nice. I really like. Yeah, yeah we, we use that a lot in jiu-jitsu too. Like um, we'll learn specific individual techniques, um, but then um, while we're grappling, our coach will be yelling at us from the side. And what you find is that you learn the individual techniques, but then um, from that, your imagination comes alive and you learn how to link techniques together and you learn how to modify them so you can catch them from different angles 
and things like that. So the imagination comes, you know, it's almost like immediate from from imagining it to physical reality to to experiencing it. It's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I think the uh, the idea of the uh, um, moving from knowing to understanding. I think that's mm-hmm. a large part of that. Where you know. Uh, there's a book called How to Read a Book, <laughs> and it was written like 30 years ago, and it's, it's really good. <laughs> but it breaks down kind of the idea between knowing and understanding. And the, the thought is that uh, a lot of people read to know things, but now, especially with Google, you don't really need to know things, right? The idea is that, oh, I can just Google things. Well, that's wrong, because if you can't know things and then remember those things, you can never build understanding. Mm-hmm. And understanding is when you know multiple different things and then you draw your own conclusions. And when you say that, I also it reminds me of your, your journey to the top of the mountain, you know, where you had that felt feeling, that knowing of connection with all of creation, um, but then after you came down from the mountain, the knowing isn't where you stopped. After that, you, you gained the knowledge, but then you sought after understanding of what did I just experience? What was that? And so you've been on this journey of digging deeper and understanding. I think that's so important, you know, with, with anything in our life. You know, if you learn something from a book, don't just trust the knowledge that you just learned. Like, go out there and try and create an experience that either validates or refutes what you just learned. Mm-hmm. And experience it for yourself, right? Experience is the best teacher of all. Uh, it's not, you know, teacher. It's not teachers. Yeah. Buddha himself said, don't listen to a word I've just said. And, you know, he taught, he taught that's huge discourse on the meaning of life to all his disciples. He also said, don't ever, uh, uh, don't ever make an image of me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <he> <laughs> Yeah, but he said, you know, don't trust a word I say. Go out there and experience it for yourself. And if your experience is different from my experience, trust your experience, you know. Uh, and I, that's why I love Buddhism so much is it's not, about belie- it's not about them saying believe what we tell you when we tell you to believe it uh, and don't ever ask questions. It's more like, no, here's some things that we've learned. And if you learn new knowledge, then let's change the, the paradigm. I think, yeah, the, the embracing of science by the Dalai Lama has been revolutionary. I mean, we have learned so much about meditation and, and about pretty much he's been right about most things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and you no. look at quantum physics, and it's, so it's kind of interesting. That's a good point, too. Um, so we're talking about intelligence versus uh, imagination. And for me, what popped in my head is <clears throat> like uh, esoteric practices like Buddhism where, you know, Buddhist uh, philosophy has all these theories on how reality works and karmic cycles and life and death and rebirth and um, depending on what part of Buddhism you're right. going with, right? Yeah, There's and so they, they, have, they have all these different belief systems, yeah. uh, but they have these philosophies that are many thousands of years old on how things work. And to the Westerner who reads this stuff for the first time, they just think like, "Oh, this is a figment of people's imagination. This stuff isn't real." Uh, but to them, that is knowledge that is understanding that is true wisdom so there are pieces and bits of data and information floating out here in our everyday world that some people view as imaginatory things and some people view as knowledge and fact right like if i go to a, a christian or catholic church they're like they believe uh, you know in a bearded god up in the sky right to me that's imaginatory but mm-hmm. to them that's that's real that's what's real for them and so Imagination and intelligence are subjective in in some senses too. Would you say that? Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I think I I made the statement recently that I really liked, kind of encapsulating spirituality and learning are the best things that ever happened to mankind. Applying rules to them is where we start falling apart. 
once we start trying to quantify or say this is the best way to learn or this is the best way to practice spirituality that's when I, I things start getting kind of shaky right <laughs> when people start telling us how to do things <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I, I mean, for better or worse, but I mean, I have to say, like, if if you read the Quran or if you read the the King James Bible all the way through, uh, which I've done both, they both have very positive messages on how to treat your fellow man, and they have great stories. Uh, I, I mean, honestly, if, if anybody in the world lived their life by either book, they would live a pretty peaceful existence. Yeah, you know, and the more <laughs> I studied uh, spirituality and religions a bit in college, and um, what I found was that. You know, and this has been spoken about by many, many teachers, so I'm not the first to say this, but that the underlying theme and the underlying message of most religions and traditions is the exact same. You mm-hmm. know, the golden rule. Treat everyone as if you you would want to be treated because in our essence, you know, we go back to the very first thing we talked about, we are all one. Yeah. You know, you, although you seem, to my ego, you seem like a separate person, mm-hmm. um, you know, remove the ego, and we find that we are made out of the same exact stardust. We are the same exact thing. We are in, interconnected energetically. We are interconnected on a molecular basis. We are one and the same. And um, so, if I were to treat you with disrespect or with harm, I'm actually just doing harm to myself. So why would I do that, right? And that's what all religion and spirituality teaches. Um, but with that, I think that's a good place to end our conversation today. We're yeah. At the end of our time. Um, so I want to thank you, Dustin, again for coming to the show. We covered a wide range of topics, and uh, I think the listeners are going to get a lot from it. So for any of you guys listening out there, if you have any questions or comments for myself or Dustin, please feel free to reach out at the MindOps website. That's mind-ops.com, and leave a comment there, and uh, I will either forward it to Dustin or uh, get you in contact with him or answer the questions if they are for me. Uh, that's the best way to reach out to us. Uh, we want to continue to to spread the word and spread these types of conversations among society in general. So please continue to like and share. Tell your friends and family. Uh, turn other people on to the conversation, and let's get more and more people in on this conversation that we're having with our individual minds and our collective mind together. We can we can achieve great things together. So uh, please continue to like and share. Go check out our YouTube page, the Mind Ops YouTube page, and please look forward to um, seeing podcasts, uh, these podcasts being uploaded to YouTube very soon. Um, again, we're going to be upgrading our systems quite significantly in the next couple months. So keep a lookout for that. And if you'd like to contribute to the podcast, if you find any of this information valuable at all, please feel free to donate. There should be a link at the bottom of whatever podcast app you're listening on. Every dollar counts. If you find this stuff valuable, please just you know, get on there and donate a dollar. Um, it will feel good for you and it will feel good for us and it will help get you guys a clearer message. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll keep, we'll keep doing what we're doing. So keep doing what you're doing, stay motivated and stay positive and we'll see you next time.